I love the line of that song that we can be daughters and sons. What a great line. In your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 977. This is Paul's second prayer for the church. The first prayer came in chapter 1. This is now his second prayer. Really, everything about those first three chapters is Paul wanting to pray for the churches. It's really churches, plural, not singular. The letter probably starts off to the church at Ephesus, but it's meant to be circulated. So it's for especially the Gentile churches. Paul wants to pray for them. In Paul's first prayer, the emphasis is on enlightenment. In Paul's second prayer, the emphasis is on enablement or empowerment, on strengthening. So one has more to do with your mind being enlightened, uh, receiving knowledge from God as to what is true, what is essential, what is most important. And then having your minds filled with, with what God has revealed, we then are empowered to live according to that. So those are the two prayers. Uh, that really comes from Warren Wearsby, that enlightenment and enablement distinction. The second prayer reads like this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I've crossed out the word so because it isn't written by Paul. Really, the word that isn't written as well. Uh, both the so and the that are not something written in the Greek text. But somehow, to make it an English translation, there needs to be some sort of a transition and it's obviously very arguable what would be best put there. I would argue for the word simply and. But I included the word that, it's in gray print. So verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the approach I'm taking for this second prayer by Paul is that there are three requests. Each one is introduced by the word that, and those that's are written in the Greek. Not in English, but it's the Greek equivalent word. So there are three that's in the prayer. Each one introduces what Paul is praying on behalf of Gentile churches. The one that's grayed out is really just an elaboration of the first that. It's not a new prayer request. It's not a new addition. It's just an elaboration. It's one facet of the earlier request. Paul starts off, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, You've been with us. You know that this is the third time Paul has said, for this reason, I'm praying or I want to pray. The first time he said that was in chapter 1. The second time he said that was in chapter 3 and verse 1. And now for the third time, it's in verse 14 of chapter 3. So because this seems to be a guiding principle through the first three chapters of Ephesians, I don't take it that Paul has only one reason why he's praying. He's mentioned it three times. You put those reasons together. It's really everything that he's been writing. That's why he's praying. So it's not a single reason. It's multifaceted. 
It's everything that Paul's been talking about. Paul's reasons for praying are prompted and rooted in what God has done, what God has revealed, what God has spoken. If God doesn't do anything, if God doesn't reveal anything, Paul has no reason to pray to the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's not praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he is praying for those reasons because God has revealed himself. To us, he's revealed himself in his word and by his spirit. We learned in Sunday school, just touched on, you know, the Lord has opened our hearts to receive the things spoken of in his word. Last week, I showed you this little diagram that God's word that is the apostles' teaching, that is doctrine, is meant to facilitate prayer. That if I'm not in God's word, my reasons for praying may be sincere, but they probably are not as deeply rooted as Christ intends them to be. My reasons for praying are meant to be rooted in what God has already done, what God has already revealed, what God has already said. My reason for prayer is meant to be rooted in God, not in my own interests, which tend to be selfish, self-centered. Uh, I, don't, I can't even understand my heart fully, let alone the heart of God, but I do know what God has chosen to reveal. I, know, I can read it in Scripture. And therefore, I am to pray what God has revealed as being true. For Paul, it looks like this. God has accomplished a mighty work of salvation in Christ. That includes, and then I've got a dot, 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 because although you can anticipate how that sentence finishes, it's shocking, and you might want to gasp. So, because God has accomplished a mighty work of salvation in Christ that includes Gentiles as equals, because of that reason, Paul prays. The second reason that, that encapsulates those first three chapters is that Christ creates one new man in himself and reconciles both Jews and Gentiles in one body to God, that is, the church. And that statement is taken explicitly from chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Let me go ahead and read those couple verses to you. If I can, I thought I had them in my notes, but I'm not sure I do, so let me find Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 read thusly. Speaking of Christ, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that Christ might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So it's for those two reasons on the screen that Paul prays for the Gentile churches. God has included them in this gospel message of salvation, where they are equals, co-heirs, with all that has been promised Israel in Christ. And then he prays for them because Christ has created one new man from the two, Jews and Gentiles, in this thing called the church, so that they're reconciled to one another. The hostilities ended, and that both are reconciled and brought into a relationship of peace with God Almighty. For those reasons, Paul prays for these Gentiles. On the back foyer counter, I've got that book, Praying the Bible. 
So, uh, and a number of those picked up last week. There's still plenty more on that back foyer counter. It's an easy read. I don't know what you've got planned for 2023, but it would be a good book to read that would teach you how to use God's Word as the basis for your prayer so that you're not just winging it, but you're actually using God's Word as the basis for what you pray and why you pray. Freely available on that back foyer counter. Let's look at Paul's first request in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, which is the main request in this second prayer. That God's people, the Gentiles, would be strengthened with power through his Spirit, through his Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is what takes the Word of God and makes it come alive, that lets it make a difference. Paul isn't praying for himself that, you know, I will be the man. You know, I will do something. I will do what I haven't done before. I will be... No, it's that God's Spirit would do something in our lives. Specifically, he says, in your inner being. Your inner being. He's not saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will win the game. I will win the match. I will win the athletic event. It's not that. That's how we use it in our culture, because we don't know the Bible. But when the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's talking about the inner man, the inner being. It's the, it's the immaterial part of you. It's your thoughts. It's your will. It's your desires. It's your affections. It's the inside of you. That I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what motivates you. But Paul's prayer is that on the inside, we would be strengthened to be different than what we are. That's Paul's prayer. Which is why when Paul makes that statement in, in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about it has nothing to do with externals because I've been strengthened from the inside. So that whether I have plenty or whether I have he says in want, whether I'm in want, I, I'm strengthened in Christ. I'm content because I'm strengthened in the inner man. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. The lesson is this. Paul's prayer is not focused on a change of circumstances for either himself or for them. But rather, Paul's prayer is on strengthening of the inner being. That's Paul's prayer request. Don't mishear me and say that it's wrong, to, it's wrong to pray for a change in external circumstances. That's okay to pray. If I'm struck sick, I want to pray I get better. That's a change in external circumstances. But it's not the deepest prayer. It's not the best prayer. The best prayer is that in spite of external circumstances, I'm so strengthened from the inside, I recognize that God is never not God. Another way to put this, the lesson there, would read like this. Paul's prayer is not focused on a change of circumstances, either for himself or them, but on a change in thinking, in awareness, in perception, in comprehension, in my attitude. So that God may grant whatever it is, the change I want in my externals, and I will thank God for it, but God may give me the grace to go through it. And either way, it's by his strength. There's a great little fundraiser letter that Cindy and I received this week 
from World Magazine. Uh, I listen to the podcast. She reads the magazine. Some of you may do both. But the fundraiser uh, letter starts off this way. Clifford. They treat me formally. Do the daily headlines make your blood boil? Do you find yourself continually angry and outraged when it comes to current events? Does your blood pressure spike as you discuss the news with your friends, family, and coworkers? If you're like most of World's audience, the answer is no. That's because World knows, and you know, that whatever the news, our God is still on his throne. Wow, what a great line. What a great fundraising letter. I told Cindy, like, we need to send them money. <laughs> That's what Paul's praying. He's not praying that, you know, the externals change. He's praying that I change from the inside. I'm strengthened from the inside so that I've got an attitude and a comprehension and a perception and awareness and a thinking that God is still on his throne. He hasn't abandoned his church, no matter where his church is found. And so we have reason to pray and to praise and to serve and to minister because God is still on his throne. Paul prays so that no matter their circumstances, they are not shaken. That's the prayer request. It's not that get rid of the adverse circumstances so I'm not shaken, but rather we're strengthened from the inside so that no matter my circumstances, I am not shaken. Paul writes this, he describes himself in chapter 3, I'm a prisoner. Other times he talks about being in chains. He talks about, I have suffered to bring the gospel to Gentiles. But he's strengthened from the inside. So Paul doesn't pray, so church, pray, I've done this for you. Pray that I am released and I gain my freedom. Pray that my externals change. No, it's praying for strength from the inside. Look at chapter 6, when Paul actually does mention a prayer request on behalf of himself. Look at what he says, verses 16 to 20. Paul has a lot to say about prayer in this particular letter. Verse 16, chapter 6, Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To, the, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." That's Paul's prayer request. It's not change the externals, but give me such an awareness, such a I am zoned in to the gospel and Christ's lordship and who God is and his sovereignty and his majesty that I don't stop talking about it. That's the prayer request. That's a good prayer request. That's good for our church. It's good for me. It's good for you. He talks about the second phrase is the elaboration. Here he talked about strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The inner being and your hearts, I think they're synonymous terms here. He's just he's looking at what happens when you're strengthened. God's spirit is doing it. Christ is dwelling. 
Your hearts in Scripture, your hearts are the seat of your thinking, your emotions. It's the seat of your will. We, we separate. In our culture, your heart is your passion. It's your emotion. But your mind is where your thoughts come from. But that's not true in the Bible. In the Bible, the thoughts are derived out of your heart. So he's praying that in your hearts... Christ may dwell. Question, if I'm a Christian, doesn't Christ already dwell in my heart? Doesn't he already reside in my heart? I was a Christian. I thought Christ already dwelt in my heart. And the answer to that question is yes and no. Or yes and not entirely so. Because in the Bible, there's a difference between positional salvation and experiential salvation. Positional salvation is what is your position in Christ... Christ's work is finished. It's what God knows to be true. God sees the finished project, pro, product in light of his plan that goes from before the creation of the world and goes into the age to come. Your position in Christ as a Christian is secure. But in your experience, you know, but I still sin. I still struggle. I'm still tempted. It's still a work in progress. So that I can show you in Scripture, the Bible teaches... If your faith is in Christ, your sins are forgiven, the Bible says you are saved. I can show you in the Bible that the Bible says you are being saved. I can show you in the Bible where it says one day you will be saved. Because it's a progress, it's a process from our vantage point. From God's vantage point, our position is in Christ, it's done. So that if we're talking about positional salvation, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. You either have Him or you don't. There's not, a, there's not unbelievers who don't have Christ. Then there's believers who do have Christ. And then there's some wishy-washy believers that, yeah, they're Christians, but they don't have Christ yet. There's no such thing. If you're a Christian... God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, in the presence of His Holy Spirit, He dwells in you. That's your position. But there's also an experiential aspect to it. So I think as James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, it is true that all who are truly Christians are indwelt by Jesus Christ. But it is also true that this is something we must grow into as Christ takes stronger and fuller possession of every corner of our lives. Because it's a process that Christ is dwelling in me and he gains control over me over so that I reflect the character of Christ more often than I did when I first got started on this pilgrimage as a Christian. So, when he uses that word dwell... He's talking about dwelling in the sense of your experience. He's talking about Christ gaining stronger and fuller possession of every corner of my life. That Christ would dwell in me. He does dwell in me, I'm a, positionally. But in my experience, it needs to be more evident. And it's a process. If you have questions on that, we can talk about that after uh, the service, either during question and answer time or you want to approach me privately. If Christ is dwelling in the heart, it means he is rightfully ruling over a person's thoughts, motivations, behaviors, and then emotions. I really don't like the word emotions as a Christian. I much prefer the word affections. That's the word that Jonathan Edwards preferred. 
affections is positive. Uh, emotions tends to be passive. You're controlled by your emotions. Your emotions wash over you. Affections <clears throat> are something that come from God by his spirit. And so you, you uh, desire things better than yourself. You desire something outside of yourself. That's a, uh, Edwards called it a religious affection. Let me talk about that word dwell. But to talk about that word, let me tell you how to pronounce it. Okay, in the Greek, the root word for dwell is oikeo. Oikeo, it means to dwell. But that, starting with that root word, you can add parts to it to give it a nuance of meaning. One part would be par okeo. You add that prefix par. You've probably, if you've been in church very long, you've heard that the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. That's the same prefix, which means beside. The Holy Spirit comes along beside, and he guides, he instructs, he comforts. He's the paraclete. He comes alongside. So you add par to okeo, you've got beside to dwell. To dwell beside. But you could mix it up and put in a different prefix. You could put in kat okeo, which means down to dwell, as opposed to dwelling beside. It's to settle down, to dwell, to settle down. Paul could have used any one of these three words. Let me show you the one he did use, but first let me show you how, uh, how they can be a little different. Let me go back to after Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus, unbeknownst to two travelers who were leaving Jerusalem to go back to Emmaus, are joined by a stranger who happens to be Jesus. It's in Luke's gospel. It goes like this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That word visitor is parokeo, beside to dwell. Are you the only one who checked into Jerusalem over the last couple days? You were dwelling along with us for a time. You were at the hotel. They were probably... No, no, that's a different story. But at any rate, are you the only visitor? And then the story goes on. A second use would be in Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live, or the word sojourn, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Again, it's this word, to dwell beside. Abraham lived in a tent. He never settled down. He didn't settle down and live. He dwelt alongside of all the people that were in that area. He was a visitor. He was a stranger. There was a sense in which he was never anything more than just a passing through. It turns out the, 
The same word for paropeo is used in Ephesians. It's in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer dwelling beside us. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So from the time that God first called Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and the raising up and forming of this nation of Israel, for all those hundreds of years, Gentiles just dwelled along beside. Because they weren't really insiders, they were outsiders. But we found out in Ephesians chapter 2, they've been brought inside so that they're no longer dwelling beside, but now they're fellow citizens with the saints fellow members of the household of God. That's not the word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3. Here he uses the word, Christ may dwell in your hearts, that is, to settle down. Down to dwell. He's not praying for the church that Christ would pay you a visit and set some things in order. What he's praying is that Christ will settle down in your hearts and he's come to stay. And he's going to take control over every thought. Every thought will be held captive. Every motivation, every affection, every desire, he's going to settle down. There's a big difference between visiting and settling down. My brother from Florida comes to visit. He doesn't listen to these messages. And I get along with him pretty well. Things have gotten better. But I'm glad he just has some suitcases. And he just, you know, he's visiting for a while. But I know he's going to go home eventually. Uh, If he came and he had a U-Haul in the back of a vehicle and he started unloading, you know, suitcase after box, and I'm like, uh, I'm not in for that. (laughs) Paul's prayer request isn't that Christ would pay us a visit and kind of get a few things in order, make a few corrections, and then leave again. Paul's prayer for the church is that Christ settles down. He's there to stay. Because there's a new, new owner of the house. New one in charge. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. That's Paul's prayer request. Through faith. Faith is knowing and trusting in the person of Christ. Faith is knowing and trusting in the promises of God. Faith is knowing and trusting in the power of God. And this demonstrates the importance of knowing doctrine. You can't have faith if you don't know what God has done. You can't have faith if you don't know what God has said. You can't have faith if you don't know what God has revealed. It starts with His Word. You can have faith in the sense that you can believe and trust in something, but your faith is only as valuable as the object in which it is placed. I can have, I remember once in college, the first time around, when we were, I didn't really know the area, but we were in a gorge in a river in, in Ohio, and it was winter time, and we were walking on the ice, and I really had no idea how much water was underneath there and how fast it was going. And it started cracking, and it was kind of frightening, because while I had faith I could walk on that ice, it was not well-founded faith. Some people have great faith in an object that has no power to deliver them. Some people have just a mustard seed of faith, but it's in Christ. 
And the power of that faith is in the object in which it is placed. So the power really is in the person, not their faith. So faith is knowing and trusting in the person of Christ, the promises of God, and the power of God. Then the second request, which we're not going to spend nearly as much time on, but the second request in the middle part of verse 17 says, that you, the second request, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The second request has everything to do with the love of Christ. It has, Paul's praying that we would have some understanding and comprehension and knowledge of the love of Christ. Three statements from his second request. Number one, a Christian must first be rooted and grounded in love. That must, that's how it starts. That you being rooted and grounded in love. That's number one. Number two, then, having been rooted and grounded, then a Christian may comprehend and know Christ's love. And then the kicker is point number three, Christ's love surpasses knowledge. Those three statements are Paul's second request. Let me go through them quickly. How does a Christian become rooted and grounded in love? The way a Christian becomes rooted and grounded in love is going back to the first request, that we're strengthened by God's Spirit. So that Christ is, he dwells in our hearts, he takes up his presence in our hearts. As that request is fulfilled, it turns out we are rooted and grounded in love. Rooted, nourished by that love. Grounded by that love. We're set firm in that love. We know what God has done because we know what God has said. And I believe it through faith. God has said, he has, he has set in motion this plan from before the creation of the world where he has called me to himself by his grace. I know those things because he said them. And so I become grounded in his love that he who began a good work in me is not going to leave me now. He's going to see it through to completion. He's the one that started it. He's the one who's going to finish it. That's grounding. That's nourishing. Secondly, then a Christian may comprehend and know Christ's love together with all the saints. It is impossible for any one Christian to even begin to say that I comprehend and know Christ's love all by myself apart from his church. He makes it very clear it's with all the saints. Because you know what? Christ's love is demonstrated to each one of you in a way that's a little bit different from the way that Christ's love is demonstrated to me. And if I think I can define all of the character of God in his goodness, in his diversity, just by virtue of what he's done for me, I've missed so much. I need the church. It's always been that way. It's not my church, it's Christ's church. It's always been his church. Christians flourish, or at least are in a position to flourish, as they gather together in a way that they can't flourish all by themselves. It's always been that way. Ephesians is all about Christ's church. So it's together with all the saints, and it's to comprehend Christ's love. That word comprehend actually means to seize or to snatch or to latch onto. It's used in a variety of ways in the Bible. A woman was seized in adultery and taken before Jesus. What are we going to do with her? They seized her. 
There was a man that came to Jesus and he said, uh, Jesus, my son is in fits of torment. The spirit comes over him, it seizes him and it casts him on the ground and your disciples couldn't cast out the evil spirit. What can you do? It seizes him. It's the same word that, that Peter uses. I should get this one right. Peter, when he visits Cornelius' household, he makes this statement. It takes him a while to get there. But eventually Peter says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Perceive, I mean, okay, it's the word seize. In other words, he's like seized with, he's seized with this thought. I'm overwhelmed by this thought. I realize now that God doesn't have a special relationship with Israel because we're so noble, we're so worthy, we're so valuable. I perceive, I'm seized by the thought that God accepts all who call upon the name of Christ for salvation. I'm seized by that thought. I can't escape that thought. Paul says we need to be seized by the love of Christ. You will never be seized by the love of Christ if you don't spend some time thinking about it and contemplating it and gathering with the church. Maybe you being seized by that thought will come during a song that is sung, the, the lyrics of the song. All of a sudden it will seize you that we could be daughters and sons. Christ came that we could be called daughters and sons of the living God. There was a time that thought really seized me when I heard it in that song for the first time. It's still my favorite line out of the song. But there was a time, the first time it seized me. It arrested my thinking. I couldn't get it out of my head. I am a son of the living God because of what he did. And then he died on a cross that my sins would be taken away. Has that thought seized you? Has it arrested your attention? Or is it just the gospel story you grew up with in Sunday school? And you know the particulars, but it's not seized you where it's shaken the foundations of your heart. Paul's praying that it would seize us and that we would know the love of Christ. No, I think here it has a range of meaning, but the idea, experience it. Because the third thought is, it's a knowledge, or it's a love that surpasses knowledge. So we know it, yes, we know it, but there's another sense in which we'll never know it. However much you know of the love of Christ, however much it has ever seized you and shaken your soul, you will never really know it entirely impossible. Because the height, depth, width, length of Christ's love is greater than any one person could ever possibly imagine. Impossible. So that then... Uh, Paul uses those four expressions, breath, length, height, and depth. Paul doesn't tell us why. You know, commentators write and they say, we don't know why Paul said that, but let me give you my take on it. And they're wonderful takes. They're beautiful takes. You know, the, the breath of Christ's love. Christ's love is so broad, it includes what was so separate, Jews over there and Gentiles over there. Christ's love is so great, the breath of his love brought the two together. Christ's love is... The length of Christ's love stretches back from eternity past in Ephesians chapter 1, and it will reach into uh, eternal glory to be with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. Christ's love is so magnificent, its height will, will raise you. It will protect you and keep you in your greatest moments from your success, and it will prevent you from ever being lost in your lowest moments in the depth. 
I mean, there's lots of ways to look at those four words. Paul doesn't tell us. He, what he's clearly communicating is it's more than you will ever fathom. It's more than you will ever fathom. Think about that for a while. Meditate on that for a while. He will never leave us or forsake us. His love is too great for that. Be rooted in that. Be grounded in that and press forward. What are your comments and questions? Hannah. Yeah, it is a very interesting thought. It, it's often occurred to me in some ways that, I mean, I realize I have an embarrassment of riches, of church history and what has been written and insight into scripture. It's an embarrassment of riches. And it's, it's my library's, it's an embarrassment how much I have and how much I still could use. How much? But I think of the apostles. They, nobody could have been more convinced than those apostles Jesus died on a cross. The most brutal, unimaginable death. They, I mean, you didn't have to convince them that Jesus was dead. He, he was dead as dead gets. He wasn't partly dead, almost dead. He was dead, dead. And the third day he rose again. So if, if I'm an apostle and I saw how dead he was and how alive he now is, I'm thinking, you can't touch me. You can't touch What can man do to me? When Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill the body, destroy the body, what can you do to me? The worst that you can do is same to what they did to Jesus. You'll kill me, and I'm going to rise again. I know I'm going to rise again because he rose again. And he's my Lord, and he's my, he's my Messiah. He's the Son of God. In him is life. I would be indestructible. Because I know how dead Jesus was and I know how alive he is. I know it by faith in what God's word tells me. But I don't know it in the sense that I have touched Jesus and heard him speak. But I think that's part of the prayer. That I would be strengthened with that same confidence that as a Christian, no one can touch you. Somebody said it like Augustine. Like, you know, as long as you're here, you've got a job to do. No one can touch you. Nobody can cut your life short because you belong to Christ. You belong to God. It is appointed unto man once to die. You will die unless Christ comes back, but nobody can touch you. So don't fear what men can do. Jonathan. Thinking about the, the word dwell, different flavor to Jesus telling his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, and I... Oh, I know the gospel. I know the gospel. Yeah. Absolutely. I know. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We still have one more request to do. Not today. Next week. Anybody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.